Thank you for listening to the teaching podcast of Muncie First Church. If you would like to know more about us, go to MuncieFirstChurch.com. Or if you would like to support a ministry, go to the giving page, MuncieFirstChurch.com slash give. Well, let's jump into the teaching from this last week. My son Jake was a, uh, was a teenager in high school. He and I took Brazilian jiu-jitsu together. He loved it, and so we ended up going two or three times a week. In the first couple of months, I thought I was going to die. No, really. Jiu-jitsu, I learned, was a, a grappling sport, and meaning it's a lot like wrestling, which is something I told you I did in high school, except instead of pinning someone, you're trying to submit someone, right, with a, you know, an arm bar or a knee bar or the infamous rear naked choke. <laughs> now, if you've been tra- trained to wrestle, in school, wrestlers are not comfortable on their back. In fact, you're taught you never want to be on your back. However, jujitsu teaches you to get comfortable on your back and try to work for position regardless of what position you may be in. And, uh, you know, I think one of the reasons my son liked it so much is because he got to abuse his dad without consequence. And, you know, us fathers, we make sacrifices for our children, don't we? (laughs) Even physically sometimes. And after uh, about six months of training, a poster went up at the the place where we went that said, Tournament, two months. And my son signed us both up for the tournament without asking me. (laughs) And he's like, oh, Dad, you can do it. It's going to be fun. And so, so we went to the tournament and... Well, the way those work is you grapple with someone in your same weight division and also someone who is at the same level that you're at, like white belt, blue belt, whatever, and then weight classes are usually 10-pound increments until you get to heavyweight, and that's 210 and up. And my, my son ended up winning first place in his division that day. I was also proud of him. Myself, on the other hand, well, let's just say I got the... It was double elimination, and let's just say I got (laughs) the mat wiped with my face twice. (laughs) I left that day very, very proud of my son, but a a bit embarrassed, honestly, for myself, and uh, because part of me felt like, I I let my son down, and you know, he was trying to be a good son. Oh, Dad, you did good. don't, Don't worry about it, you know, and so... After, um, after going back to training the next week, I, I asked my instructor after class what he thinks I did wrong, and he was very honest with me. He said, Brian, your problem is not your ability or your technique, your problem is your cardio. He said, after about a minute and a half, you tank, you're done. <laughs> you're begging somebody to tap you out, you know. He said, guys even joked behind my back that it was misery to grapple with me for two minutes. But after that, they knew if they could hang for two minutes, they would win. (laughs) And so during that time in my life, I took up mountain biking. I began to ride a bike. So I was going two or three times a week with Jake to do this, and I was riding a bike two or three times a week. And uh, my cardio greatly improved. And so about a year later, another tournament uh, came up, and I'd been riding bikes at that point for, you know, nine months or so, and Jake signed us up again, and I worked hard to cut weight because I didn't want to end up in the heavyweight division. And so uh, I wanted to end up in that division that was like 199 to 209, okay? But we went in, and, you know, when they weigh in on those scales, you can take as many clothes off as you want, um, and, and I was, down, you know, I, I, I took some clothes off because I wanted to weigh in under 210, and 
I still weighed in at 211, so I was in the heavyweight class, second tournament, and I look out at the, those other giants in the heavyweight division thinking, here we go again. And so the first guy that, that I stepped onto the mat with in that tournament was six foot two, I'm five foot seven. He was uh, 275 pounds at least. I was about uh, 211 at the time. And we, we locked up and I just thought, man, I, I was defeated before I ever went out. And, and he went for some sort of a leg sweep and he actually lost his balance and good for me, he fell. And when he fell, I jumped on top of him and I choked him and he tapped the mat and gave up and I surprised myself. <laughs> uh, I ended up uh, grappling with six other opponents throughout the course of that tournament, winning every one of them and leaving that day first place in my division. I, I don't take jujitsu anymore. <laughs> this story is not about me and jujitsu. The first tournament I lost because there was part of my training that I didn't take seriously. The second tournament I won because I submitted to the instruction of my trainer and took it seriously. I think there's parts of the Christian walk that some Christians don't take seriously. And this tournament for me became an illustration of a real life walk because we're in a battle. We're in a constant match. And it's not physical, it's much worse. Sometimes I wish the devil would show up physically and go ahead and get it over with. But instead, he sort of likes to stay on our back, doesn't he? Turn with me to James chapter 4, if you will. And we're going to begin reading in verse 7. I'd like to say to you this evening, before we get started, that if you're not submitting to the authority in your life, there's no way for you to resist the enemy in your life. It's impossible. If you're not submitting to the structures that God has, if you're undermining the authority structures that God has placed in your life, you are open game for spiritual warfare because you are not placing your life under that covering. Taught throughout the Bible. James chapter 4 says it as plainly as anywhere. Would you stand with me as we read James chapter 4 verse 7 through uh, 10. Therefore submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now I, I want to give you a thought here right out of the gate so when I say devil, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When I say enemy, you know what I'm talking about. The devil is not omnipresent, he's not the Holy Spirit, you understand that? But he is the prince of the power of the air and he has legions of... Of, of demonic forces in every part of the earth. Now I would say Satan himself has probably maybe never showed up in my life personally. So when we say Satan, we're maybe not talking about him himself. We're talking about something much bigger than him. The entire legion of darkness. All the demons and devils and spiritual wickedness in high places in the whole universe. Okay? I mean, I don't think I'm important enough for Satan to show up personally. But I'll tell you this, his demons never stop working. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. A double-minded person is what? Unstable in everything they do. You cannot serve two masters. If your allegiance is tied to one thing and to God, you're serving the other thing, you're not serving God. You'll never have spiritual victory in your life. You might live for a ticket to heaven, but you'll live in misery here. There's a better way. 
Because this passage teaches us that if we will submit to God, draw near to God, that He promises to draw near to us. Lament, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. James is teaching us to lament over our situation. Humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. That's how we draw near to Him. You don't have the capacity to lift yourself up. James 4.10 says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He does the lifting up. Amen. Submit to God, resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Lord, thank you again for your word. And I pray tonight that you would give us ears to hear. Lord, this is a very heavy subject that we're going to uh, embrace this evening, that we're going to discuss. And God, I really don't have the words or the thoughts to give these dear saints that's gathered here, Lord, but, but you do. And I'm willing to be a conduit of your spirit. And so God, I pray you would hide me behind the cross and use me to lift up Jesus and to lift up your word this evening. It's in Christ's name I pray, and together we say, Amen. You may be seated. How many of you know you're in a battle? That wasn't enough hands. Yeah, I was kidding, but I mean, I assume most of you know. You're not battling flesh and blood, though. We often make the battle about flesh and blood in the church and fight with one another. Yet you're in no way drawing near to God when you fight with another person. No, in fact, you're further distancing yourself from God's plan for your life when you fight with another person. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, the Bible says, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And I am convinced that too many Christians don't know how to fight. Well, I'm going to give you some advice from God's Word tonight on how to fight this battle we're in. Whether you receive it or not will be completely up to you. So as it pertains to, let's just get a few things out in the open here. As it pertains to your Christian walk, as it pertains to your spiritual journey with Christ, do you ever feel like you got a monkey on your back? I, I fought spiritual warfare today uh, from about 1230 uh, to about 430. while I was trying to review these notes and prepare my heart to preach this message because it's so heavy. The enemy doesn't want me to preach this message. The, 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 the spiritual wickedness in high places does not want you to hear this message. Sometimes this weight that comes upon us, it may feel like a light distraction. Uh, you know, that's where that whole double-mindedness things comes in. Those distractions that sort of... See, that's spiritual warfare too. The, anything, that, anything that garners our attention or draws our attention away from our love and our intimacy with Jesus is double-mindedness. I'm not saying you can't have other things that you love, but what I'm saying is when God says, put me first, that means there's no distant second, right? There's not even a second, it's just Him first in everything. So sometimes it, it may feel like a light distraction and other times it may feel like a, a 500 pound gorilla. But the scripture teaches us that if we will resist the devil, which I'm convinced we have to learn how to do, that we don't naturally know how to do that, he will flee from us. Learning to resist means learning to submit. Now, I, I want to give you a word lesson here very briefly. The word submit in this text comes from the Greek word hupotasso. Hupotasso, and it means to place yourself under, to submit to, to give another a place of authority in your life willfully. God's kingdom operates by authority. 
And if you want to be completely yielded to Jesus, you will have to submit yourself to those authority structures in your life. And the only time you do not submit yourself to those authority structures is if they ever try to get you to do something that's contrary to the Word of God. Not because you differ in opinion with them, not because they say something that you don't like. That has nothing to do. I I submit myself to the authority of the Church of the Nazarene. I am a man under authority. I have authority structures in my life. I've got a board that I submit to over my district. I've got general superintendents, one in particularly at this season that oversees everything I do. I report to them via email every week. Not because I have to report that often, but because I believe in being under authority and being transparent and accountable. Because that's God's way. And I can't walk in the blessing of God if I'm not submitted to the authority structures that he's placed in my life. You know, a, a great example, maybe one of the best in all of Scripture, is the story of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. I mean, when the children of Israel were taken into Babylonian captivity, God told them to submit to the rulers, the very ones that had seized their land and taken them captive. God told them to submit to the rulers of Babylon so that they might have peace. And if you'll remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, the, the three Hebrew children who met God in the fiery furnace, they submitted to King Nebuchadnezzar and were blessed by their submission to the king. They worked for the king. They had high places of honor. In the, in the, the only place that they differed with the king was when he tried to get them to bow down to the idol. And really, the king gave two routes, either bow down to the idol or be thrown into the furnace. So really, they were still submitted to the king's plan. They just weren't going to bow down. So they were submitted to the point of death. And it ended up being the greatest day of their life. Now, submitting to authority doesn't mean that God supports evil that's being inflicted on people by the governments of this world. But it does mean that God ordains structure in this world. So so we're talking about two different kinds of authority this evening. We're talking about authority spiritually when it comes to the church. And we're talking about authority as it pertains to civil obedience when it comes to the government under which we exist. And, and so God ordains government for structure in this world. Could you imagine living in a government-less society? Could you imagine living in total, I mean, to where depravity ruled the day, to where there was no, no consequences for anything that anybody did? No laws, no rules, no sort of structure. I thank God for structure and authority and government. We ought to thank God for that. You see, uh, the results of depravity, if God had not ordained a certain level of order, the earth would be complete chaos. So in God's eternal wisdom, He has decreed order and authority structures. And really what authority is, even as it pertains to the government, is it is God's grace at work in society. It's God's common grace at work, preventing things from, you know, things aren't as bad as they could be, right? If there was no sort of authority structure in society, things would be a whole lot worse. And you can look in parts of the world where the government's so corrupt or has been overthrown by these, refu- uh, by these uh, you know, movements, these anarchy movements, and you can see where that's happening. It's a lot worse than it was before. Now, I could talk for a long time about what's happened in the Middle East and how uh, the government has been turned over on its head and we see the rise of terrorism and all those things. That's not what this is about. I only want you to see that God ordains authority. Luke chapter 7 provides a great example of God's authority uh, structure on display. There's a centurion whose servant is sick and he comes to Jesus and says, listen to what he says, I'm going to read it to you. I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. Remember his servant's sick. He says, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For, for I also am a man placed under authority. Having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go. And he goes. And to another, come. And he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. And when Jesus heard that centurion who wasn't even a believer... He marveled at him. 
what the word says, that he marveled at him and said, he, he turned around and said to the crowd, not to the servant, he said to the crowd, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. In all this land, nobody has made a greater statement of faith. That man was essentially saying, I believe you are who you say you are, and I submit to your authority, say the word, and it's done. I want you to notice what the centurion did not say in his example to Jesus. He did not say, I am the authority, so everybody does what I say. He didn't say that. No, he said, I'm a man placed under authority. I myself. And placed under authority. I mean, what was he saying? He was saying that the people under him followed his commands not because of who he was, but because of who he was under. Who was he under? The Roman Empire. <laughs> and everybody knew that. He represented something way greater than himself. He represented Caesar. <laughs> When we learn the power of submission to the authority structures in our lives, in our families, in society, in, in the church, God help us. In the church, that's when we discover what power in the kingdom of God is really all about. I think about my wife over the years. Heather didn't sign up for ministry. She didn't sign up. We got married. I wasn't planning on being in ministry. Far from it. And at times it has been very tough on her because she's introverted. You understand? She's not the typical pastor's wife. She doesn't play the bass. Right. <laughs> The amazing pastor's wife. You have an amazing pastor's wife. Amen. Hallelujah. We blew social media up with her playing the bass the other night. It was great. My wife doesn't play the piano. How many interviews early on we sat in that asked that question? In fact, I learned after about the third one at the very beginning saying, by the way, she doesn't play the piano and she doesn't oversee any ministry, but she'll help you with anything, right? She doesn't lead to women's ministry. My wife is, is a career woman. She has left high-paying jobs. She has left family and friends. She has left everything she's ever known and submitted herself to the call of God on my life. Oh, I know some say... Well, if one's called, you know, they're both. I don't know if it's always that neatly packaged. My wife would tell you it's not. Because if you ask her if God called her to ministry, she would say, no, he called Brian and I've submitted to him in that. Not me, to God. She submitted to God's call on my life because she sees it and she believes in it. Now, you know what? Heather, she's a lot smarter than I am. I'll tell you that right now. And I thank God for her. Uh, I, I always brag on my wife to, to, just to let people know how smart she is. Uh, in, as a senior in high school, she won the North Carolina State Medical Spelling Bee. Okay? The entire state. And so, I mean, she's just, she's way better than me. And she isn't following me, okay? That's not what this is. But she knows the one I'm chasing after with all my heart. She knows the one I've submitted my life to. She's seen the difference in my life. She knows that I'm a man under authority, and she has made a conscious decision to leave everything and surrender her life to Jesus under the calling he's established on our family. And you know what he's done? He's replaced good jobs with better jobs. He's replaced old friends with new friends. He's replaced former places with brand new places. And we've experienced God move in our lives in all kinds of ways because of the unity that exists under the authority that He's placed in our family through a call 
to ministry. I can't tell you how many times God has moved in my life in a direction that I wasn't even considering because she was praying for something to happen. I can't tell you how many times I've tried to get her to give me an answer for some decision that I need to make and I just need somebody to sort of verify it and she won't say a word. Man, I can't stand that. I mean, she literally don't nod her head, doesn't say anything, just looks at me, turns and walks away. I know where she's going though. She's going to pray. She submitted to God not because of me, but because of what God's done in our life. And it makes all the difference in the world. And that is the power of following God and being under the structure that He's designed for our lives. And the only way we'll ever be able to resist the devil, the only way he's ever going to flee from us, is for us to be submitted to Jesus and the authority structures He's placed in our lives. You want to disarm the enemy? It's only done through Jesus' victory. Amen? It's through His victory. The victory is not yours. It is His victory. The victory that you walk in, the victory that you can experience is His victory. It's not your victory. What did Jesus say when He died on the cross? It is finished. Right? That's what He said. The Bible teaches that then Jesus descended to the center of the earth which is the holding place that the Hebrew text refers to as Sheol or Hades in the Greek. Hell is what we might call it. Uh, in this place, there's a compartment in old Hebrew literature taught that there was a compartment set aside for the wicked. In other words, those who had died in their sins. And another compartment set aside called paradise, those who died with faith in God. This is also illustrated in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. Now, what did Jesus say to the thief on the cross that professed faith in him? You remember? Say it again. Today, you will be with me in paradise, which was one part of the compartment in Sheol, because if you'll remember the teaching of the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus went to paradise, and he could see, right? He could see across the gulf. He could see across the gulf. Or the rich man went to Sheol and he could see across the gulf. Now, we've taught over the years that Satan and his legions of demons are in hell. But they're not. Not yet. The book of Revelation reveals very clearly that, 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 that they will be cast into hell one day, into the lake of fire. But that's not where they are now. Do you know where they are now? They're right here. They're right here running to and fro throughout the earth. <laughs> now, when Satan fell from heaven, the Bible teaches that he became the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the lives of the children of disobedience. That's what it teaches. And when Satan came before God in the book of Job, you can read it there, here's what, he, here's what God asked him. Satan, from where do you come? And he said, from going to and fro in the earth and walking back and forth in it. And at the end of time as we know it, the Bible reveals that Satan and his legion of demons will be cast into hell and will forever remain there. But that is not where he's at now. Now, this gets very interesting because when Jesus rose from the dead, uh, the scripture teaches that he led captivity captive. I've always been intrigued by that. Uh, that Jesus, those who were being held captive, Jesus took them captive with him, right? He, he took them captive. That means that, that he preached to all those being held in Sheol. And he took those there captive. He preached to the spirits in prison. Or to Taurus, uh, 2 Peter 2. Brought the righteous dead out and delivered them to the third heaven in the presence of God forever. Okay? Now scripture teaches that some of those spirits, it even teaches that some of them, when they came out after the resurrection, appeared to many people in Jerusalem. That's what the Bible teaches. And then it says, and here's where I want to focus. It says that Jesus took the keys to the kingdom. I'm interested in the keys to the kingdom. 
I like keys. They let you in places, right? I, I enjoy keys. And, and so I, if you want to look with me or, or on your phones or in your Bible, Colossians chapter 2, I'm going to read a passage there uh, written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae. Verse 13, I don't think I have this on the screen, so it's Colossians chapter 2 starting in verse 13. And Paul writes this, And you being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Hallelujah. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Hallelujah. We learned about that Sunday. Aren't you glad that's what Christ has done for us? I love verse 15. Having disarmed. Some versions say spoiled. The principalities and powers, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle. Triumphing over them. This is the victory I'm talking to you about right here. He made a public spectacle. It wasn't a private matter. And he triumphed over them. So, so through, through Jesus' death, burial, in resurrection, Jesus conquered and triumphed over the principalities and the powers of this dark world and he took back the keys to the kingdom of God and for that we say hallelujah. There's a word that translates disarm or spoil in this passage and I love this word. It is the word apec duomai. Apec do am I. Everybody say that. Apec do am I. And it translates literally to disarm or to spoil, to strip off, to divest, to renounce. Now, uh, this isn't only something that is theoretically true. It is something that is practically true. Let me explain. The word apec duomai often pertained to a ceremony that would take place when a Roman general would lead his troops to, de to defeat an enemy army. And, and when they come to the place where the Roman general had won the battle, the leader of the defeated regime would bring his soldiers to a place where they would have to surrender to the victor. Everybody with me? And often it was a big open field or something. And, and what would happen then is you would have uh, the army of the, the victorious army on one side and the defeated army on the other and the defeated general and his leaders would march to the middle of the field and the, and the victorious general would march out with his his men to the middle of the field and the victorious general would begin to rip the medals off the clothes of the defeated army and say to him everything you've ever conquered is now mine every victory you've ever won is denounced and you are under my authority everything you've ever done I now take victory over hallelujah Jesus what I just described to you is apec duomai in action, okay? Not just in theory. Jesus did not take the keys to the kingdom from Satan in hell, in Sheol, or anywhere otherworldly. Jesus took them away from him right here in the atmosphere of this world. And with the angels and the hosts of heaven all around him, Jesus called Satan front and center. And he said, Satan, whatever you've gained, I now conquer. What, you once, what once was yours is now mine. You have been defeated. I disarm you. And Jesus stripped Satan of all of his power right there in front of all the spiritual entities of the universe. And he ascended to heaven and took his place, his proper place, at the right hand of God the Father. Okay. Hallelujah. Now what does that mean for me? Right, what does that mean for us? Well, it means that when we resist the devil, that he has to flee 
not because of who we are, but because of who He is, right? <laughs> not because of anything that I've done, but because the apex duomai has already taken place. So the question that plagues me as it pertains to this, as it pertains to the spiritual authority that has been given to us in the name of Jesus, how do you resist the devil? I, I, what do you do? What, what do you think him off? What do you take him out back and beat him with a bat? I mean, I, I wish. I, I, I don't. You tie him up in the basement? I, I don't know. There's only one way. And man, I believe this doesn't get talked about nearly enough. But every one of you in here can relate to what I'm talking to. There's only one way to resist the devil. And that is to speak to the devil. You believe that? All right then, when was the last time you spoke to the devil? Resisting the devil requires speaking to the devil. Requires it. Through the Bible, every time you see Jesus or anyone else resisting the devil, they are verbally, they're speaking to the devil. Every time you see the disciples cast, whatever, casting out demons, whatever they're doing, they're speaking to the devil. And it's not going to be any different for you or me. If you want to resist the devil, you're going to have to be bold enough to speak to the devil. I've watched people go through continual turmoil in their life. They even identify it as spiritual warfare and do nothing about it. They seek help in the natural and nothing ever happens. They come to the altar and pray and a lot of times when they pray they, they do these silent prayers to where they're not speaking into the atmosphere whatever that need may be. Christianity should be the safest and most vulnerable thing that any of us do. Without true transparency in your walk with God and in your submission to the structure He's put in your life, you can never have the freedom and the victory that Christ died for you to have. Too many Christians live constantly defeated because they don't know how to resist the devil. Now let me ask you this. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness... I want to sort of play out what we think might have happened there. You remember the story, right? Do you think that Satan like physically showed up? No. He showed up the same way he does with you and I. Cloaked in a thought, right? That's how Satan battles us in our mind, right? That's why Paul says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Satan always comes shrouded in a thought that causes you to second guess your identity, which is what we talked about last night. I mean, I believe our culture and even in the church, we've sort of trivialized the enemy, Right? Uh, we've made him out to be some little red man with a pitchfork and a pointy tail, you know, like a cartoon character almost. You know, the little thing on one shoulder and something on the other shoulder sort of whispering in our ear. Satan doesn't show up like that and, says, and say, here I am to make your life hell. Jesus didn't see the devil. You probably won't ever see him either. You see, part of his scheme is not to make his presence known. That's how he works best. He's always hiding in the shadows. So how does he come against you and me? The same way he came against Jesus. In the mind, cloaked in a thought, disguised in the way we think. Spiritual entities manipulate our feelings and impress lies on us through the mind. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11 
I'm not going to read it all. The devil came to Jesus in a thought and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to be turned to bread. What did Jesus do? He answered it, right. Verbally. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, right? Jesus, think about this with me for a minute. Jesus spoke to a thought. He spoke verbally to a thought. The devil came against him in a thought, and he spoke out loud against the thought. I've walked through this sanctuary this week from the moment I stepped in here speaking to thoughts. Because these enemies show up in this place. I can guarantee you that. He's working overtime in some thoughts right now. I'll guarantee you he is. No way in a crowd this side the enemy's not on somebody's back right now. Jesus spoke to a thought. Then the devil took him up to the holy city, to the highest point, and said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. What did he do? He spoke to a thought again. He said, he said, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then he took him up to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and says, I'll give you all this if you'll bow down and worship him. And, and, and Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He spoke to a thought. And every time the thought came, he spoke again. The enemy didn't take Jesus anywhere physically. He took him to those places in his mind. Jesus wasn't, the enemy don't have the capacity to sweep you off physically somewhere. But he sure does have the capacity to take your mind hostage. He takes us captive in our thoughts. And the only way to defeat him is to do what Jesus did. Speak to a thought. <laughs> and when I speak to the enemy, he has to flee because of the apex duomai that Jesus has already performed. The keys has been given to me. He's been given to you. And what we bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And what we loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. And when the enemy comes against you, you pray and you praise and you plead the blood of Jesus. And all of that includes speaking. I don't know about you, but when I walk in a room... I want to be so confident in who I am that the devil just goes ahead and leaves because he's already heard I'm coming. <laughs> Says, oh, there's that guy. I'm tired of dealing with him. He's always speaking to me. You know, it works with people too. You know how Satan creates conflict between people? Oh, pastor, you know, don't you? I fought a lot of conflict in a lot of churches over the years. And you know, sometimes you've got to speak to the devil in people. When he's working in their mind against the structure of the church. You know, oftentimes whenever he's doing that, the person that he's working on the hardest will avoid any sort of accountability when it comes to the process. I can't tell you how many people I've chased down in the hallway just to put my arm around and say, Oh, I love you. Let me pray with you. Yeah, people that won't talk to me for a month, they're going to get, their, they're going to get a big hug and a prayer. That's right. And in that prayer, I'm going to force it on them. And they're either going to take it or they're going to run. Because it's the only way to overcome the conflict. Letting it linger gives the, Satan dominion in the place when the apex duomai, the victory, has already been won. So why do we let it linger? Because we operate in fear. Anything that's led by fear in the life of the church is destined to fail. It will never flourish if fear is the deciding factor. And oh man, fear is killing the churches today. It's killing them. I don't want to offend anybody. I don't either. But I want Jesus to be glorified. And when we start doing that, I've already told you the message of the gospel is offensive. I'm sorry. I'm going to share this story with you and, uh, and we'll be done. And 
for a lot of years, I was reluctant. You talk about fear. I mean, sometimes we don't even realize we're scared to do something, right? Because when you start talking about this spiritual warfare stuff, let's just face it, a lot of people look at you and think you're loony. Right? I mean, you're walking around rebuking the devil. Somebody overhears that, they think that person's crazy. Well, I might be crazy, but I got the victory. Hallelujah. You know, I'm not living with the monkey on my back, not for a minute. You might think I'm nuts, but I've sort of learned to enjoy fighting with the devil. Like, I've just learned to enjoy it because I know I'm going to win every single time I'm going to win. Right? I'm going to win. And you are too. Not because of what I've done, but because of what he's done. I've had many encounters as it pertains to spiritual warfare, and I've witnessed it in the churches I've pastored, and in board meetings, and in public gatherings, and, and, and God will give you eyes to see. And when he does, you will be able to identify these things working. I could probably tell you about some maybe things that are working in this place, and I don't even know most of your, hardly any of your names. But I've watched and I've prayed this week because I want revival to come and victory to be had. The first parsonage that my wife and I lived in, there was some kind of a, there was a feeling associated with that house that was just kind of weird. I don't know how to explain that. Have you ever been somewhere, some location where there's just sort of a, a weird, eerie, sort of misplaced feeling? It just feels different than other places. And, and there was a, a, the house was nice, they'd remodeled it, and there was this basement, though, that was more like a dungeon, really, than a basement. And you had to go down the stairs on one end of the house, you know, it's one of those long, like ranch-style houses, and you, you go down the basement on one side of the house, and to get to the washer and dryer, you had to walk all the way across the dungeon to another little center block room on the far end of the house where one of those lights hung with a chain and you pulled the little thing you know no windows and my wife's like Ryan I don't like going down there to that washer and dryer there's something weird down there I don't know what it is and we just we 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 never felt settled in that house and I later learned that the former pastor had allowed someone to live in the basement of that house that had practiced witchcraft. And that they had, there was all kinds of things that had rumored to have, what were rumored to have taken place. And when they finally parted ways with the person, the person was so angry that they cast openly in front of the pastor some sort of spell with some sort of, you know, I don't know much about that stuff. I don't need to know. All I know is Jesus is, has defeated it but that they cast some sort of spell on that property. It wasn't many months after that happened that that pastor, the one prior to me, had had left and moved out of the parsonage, and now we're living there. Nobody bothered to tell us there had been a curse cast on the house and that the washer and dryer was in the far end of the dungeon with a little chain light. But I'm telling you, you walk through there, it didn't matter what time of day it was, through that basement, and it literally, the hairs on the back of your neck would stand up. And, and I'm, not, I'm not a fearful sort of person. I mean, I don't, that stuff usually doesn't phase me, but there was something about the basement. One night, after we'd been living there for about six or seven months, I woke up, it was a little past 3 a.m. in the morning, and I literally felt like something was pushing me down into my mattress pitch dark in my room and it the sound was if something was lightly breathing and I made out this sort of shadowy looking face with these big hollow skull like I mean it's really difficult to explain but it was as real as anything I'd ever experienced and it pressed me down in such a way that I was having a hard time breathing I was full of fear and I was trying to speak Heather she was sound asleep 
beside me. I looked over my Bible, this, actually I still have the same Bible, stays on my nightstand right beside my bed. And I started reaching for it. And suddenly the Holy Spirit whispered in my ear after what seemed like a minute or two of that, this thing just pressing in on me and me feeling like I couldn't breathe and said, why are you laying there? (laughs) And then I remembered that I'm the one that has the authority. Remembering that you're the one with the authority is an important part of this process. And I reached for my Bible and with it in my hand, I just began to whisper, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus Christ. You have no authority in this house. And suddenly, whatever it was, I was free of it. But I still sensed it. I sort of looked over to the corner of the room and just in the shadows it seemed like. So you know what? I just got up out of bed and I took my Bible and I just began to walk towards I said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I rebuke you. You have no place in this home. I began to walk through the house. I was preaching to the top of my lungs. My wife woke up and said, what in the world are you doing? I said, I'm rebuking the devil. <laughs> Go back to sleep. I went into my little girl's room and I laid my hand on her little head in her crib. She wasn't but a year and a half old and I rebuked the devil over her life she never woke up I went in my son's room and I put my hand on his head and rebuked Satan and then I opened the door to that basement and I went right down those stairs and I didn't cut a light on and I rebuked every dark spirit that was had ever stepped foot in that place and I'm gonna tell you something we never had another encounter with fear in that basement or in that house it's just the truth Can you come play, brother? If, um, if you've dealt with this sort of thing before, this isn't really an altar call kind of sermon. But I've given you some keys tonight. I've given you some principles tonight. And I think the most important one is to remember that you have authority and that you've got to speak. I don't care how crazy you think that sounds. You've got to learn to speak. Now don't go around rebuking other people. Even when the enemy's working between you, you go and you pray with that person. And even if they don't want to, you pray in proximity to them. For the strongholds of the enemy to be destroyed, let them hear you saying that. If they're bold enough to push you away when you want to pray with them, then I don't care if they hear me say, then they know, they know that there's a stronghold. I want you to stand with me tonight. And you know what? Maybe some of you here are dealing with the weightiness of what I've preached tonight right now. And Satan is whispering in your ear right now. What I would invite you to do is while we sing, is, uh, is to just find a place where you're comfortable speaking to the enemy. Find a place in this sanctuary. Find a corner. Come to the altar. Go out in the foyer. Make that your spot and take a few minutes and speak to the enemy. And then give Jesus all the glory. Amen. Amen. Speak to him. And then give Jesus all the glory. That's what I'm going to do. Because... We're free. Amen. Amen. So let's sing, let's pray, let's rebuke the enemy, and let's be free in Jesus as we leave tonight. I, I, I have got something that I feel like God is really calling me to do and say right now. You know, in our church over the years, you know, and I, I'm, a, I'm a historian. I move into a church, and I go back, and I dig in the history, and I find out what happened there, and when it happened, and why it happened, and why, you know, and all those kind of things. And in the history of our church, way back, the church was growing, and it was booming, and God was moving. And, and there was a staff member who committed a really huge sexual sin in our church. And it was kind of one of those things that tore the church up. 
I'm not going to name names or anything. Some of you were here, no, but most of you don't. It tore the church up. And nothing was really ever done about it. You know, that's the kind of thing that Satan wants to hold over the head of this church for a long time. I want to say to you, Satan, right now, that you have no hold on this church. That that has been defeated. That you must leave and you can never, ever bring that up in this place again. That has gone forever. It has been defeated. It is taken care of. I also want to say that there's been some other things since I've been here. We have had some tough, tough roads. There's been some people that came in, and there's people that's gotten their feelings hurt. I've hurt some people's feelings. I certainly have never done it on my own, deciding to do that. I've done some things that were wrong. I've said some things I shouldn't have said. And Satan loves to hold that over my head. He loves to remind me, you know, you screwed that up. You screwed this up. And Satan, you can't do that anymore because you're out of here. You have no right in this place. You have been defeated. The medals were stripped off your chest. You were reminded that you no longer are here. This church is free. We're not going to sit around and gripe at each other anymore because you're playing with our minds. We are free. As that song says, we are free, and we are free indeed, completely. Our victory is Jesus' victory. That victory was complete. It wasn't just partially. It was complete. And this church has victory. We're not going to live in those past things anymore. We're free. All right. My turn. <laughs> you can go home if you want to, but I just felt like I needed to say something. I lived in fear 50 years of my life, and the Lord has helped me to overcome that fear in surrender, the thing that I feared the most. I have more joy, more freedom and courage than I have ever had in my life. I wouldn't be up here seven years ago. Um, how many people would like to have that? To not live in fear. To even raise your hand to worship God Almighty. I mean, I'm not, this isn't about that, but I mean, there is a bondage for people that cannot even raise their hand to worship God Almighty. If you can't do that, you're in fear, you're in bondage. How many want to be released so they can worship God? I'm not asking you to go being crazy or being emotional. It's not about that. I'm just talking about freedom to do what is in your heart. If you would like to do that, raise your hand in agreement. Let me pray for you. Mark, do you give me authority in this in the church? Okay. <laughs> in the name of Jesus and the authority that he has given me and in the, the healing and anointing that he has given me in, in um, giving me the freedom of fear, I take authority over the spirit of fear in my church and I lift it off. And I command you to be gone in Jesus' name. I pray for a spirit of joy, a spirit of worship, a spirit of humility, and a spirit of courage that you are given now. No more bondage. The chains have been broken. You are free to worship. You are free to have the joy in Jesus wherever you go and courage to share it with others. Go in peace. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. She said, "Go in peace." Hold on, hold on, hold on. You two come. You two come. Who are there? Board members here and leaders. Come and come and gather around your pastor and his wife. Why don't you two kneel here at the altar and let these leaders gather around you? And what about this? Anybody else that just wants to, that you just love your pastor and his wife? Let's just pray for God to give them freedom they've never had. How about that? Hey man, what a beautiful way to end this time. For God to give our pastor the anointing and his wife the anointing and freedom that they've never had in their life. Amen. Praise God. It's going to be a new day. A new day. <laughs> Lord, we pray. We pray for the deals, God. We pray for Pastor and Darcy. Lord, that a, a stronger anointing of your presence would be on their life. 
than has ever rested on their life before. Lord, that they'd be better hosts of the Holy Spirit than they've ever been. And they're already good hosts, but God, we're, they, we're going to be even better. They're going to walk in a deeper place of favor and anointing with you. And God, I pray against every spiritual stronghold in this place. It is bound in the name of Jesus. It is cast out in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray that this church would become a center of spiritual authority and warfare, God. That it would become a place that teaches people how to fight against the enemy, God, so that they can have victory. And that victory wouldn't just be something that exists here in this building. God, it'll exist in lives and in households, God, and in the streets of money. See Indiana, God. I pray it be so, Lord, that neighborhoods would be transformed, that businesses would be transformed, because lives are being transformed and strongholds and generational curses are being broken by the power of Jesus. The apex do am I. You have disarmed them. They are spoiled forever under your authority. We are free. Thank God we're free indeed. And Lord, we pray for your anointing on our pastor and his wife in the mighty, matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Give God the glory. Hallelujah.